the most widely followed financial crimes in recent history involved Bernie Madoff, who had amassed so many millions. In fact, for decades, he'd been a leader on Wall Street, an impressive businessman who'd given millions to charities, university endowments, social causes, most importantly, his investors. But then to the shock of the financial world, uh, Bernie Madoff was found guilty of leading a Ponzi. A, a Ponzi is a, an old scam, in fact, named after Charles Ponzi, who was caught in the first lucrative scam of this sort in 1910, where he convinced investors of incredible gains, all the while simply taking the money of his newest investors and giving it to those who had invested in him earlier. As long as new investors could be found... The scam would grow until finally it collapsed, as they all do, under its own weight. Bernie Madoff's Ponzi goes down in the books as the largest Ponzi of all time. In fact, I read when he was finally caught in the net, he had actually manipulated about $64 billion. Lavish lifestyle. He financed uh, this incredible lifestyle of his from his yacht and villa on the French Riviera, to his million-dollar apartment in New York. His attorneys argued that, that Ponzi, uh, or, or that uh, this Ponzi by Madoff, was actually just something that had grown beyond his ability to shut down. He wanted to, but couldn't. He was caught. It was also argued that people got rich off his investments and uh, his returns, that charity had been helped by the goodness of Madoff's heart, even though Madoff was taking money that belonged to somebody and giving it to somebody else, which is known as... Uh, stealing. Uh, In the end, all his investors lost everything, their savings, their homes, charities, and and schools lost million-dollar endowments, and there were even some who took their lives. I read a a small book by Brian Ross, investigative correspondent for uh, ABC, who covered uh, Bernie's life and a very, very sketchy overview Uh, And, of course, this trial, most of all. And I was struck by the gravity of this final courtroom setting. It was time for the judge to deliver the sentence. The courtroom was packed, of course, with with investors and family and reporters and business associates and some of the the well-known, high-profile investors. The judge said, Mr. Madoff, please stand. And he stood. It is the judgment of this court that the defendant, Bernard L. Madoff, shall be and hereby is sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 150 years. The judge added, as a technical matter, the sentence will be expressed on the judgment in months. 150 years will be equivalent to 1,800 months. This was the guarantee that that 70-year-old Bernie Madoff would spend the rest of his life in prison. There were cheers in the courtroom and applause, and there were some who wept, for justice had been served. Now, as much as people intuitively appreciate and believe in justice like this in a courtroom setting... Ask the average person on the street what they think about the justice of God, and you'll get a dozen different opinions. Ask 
the average person on the street about the justice of God being served in a literal place called hell. And then with much more emotion, you'll get a few dozen opinions, right? Frankly, any discussion about a literal place where eternal justice is served has long since moved out of the mainstream religious scene, especially in this country. Ask the average church member, when's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? And they'll give you a blank stare. Unless, of course, they go to Colonial, then they'll say, this is all we're hearing lately. (laughs) Historian Martin Marty wrote, hell has disappeared and no one noticed. A recent Newsweek article said, today hell has become the church's H word. In other words, good people never say it. It's impolite, crude. Gordon Kaufman of Harvard Divinity School believes that this is actually a good trend. He wrote, I don't think there is any future for hell. Evidently, it's out of bounds. It's out of step with the world. And the average church member doesn't really know much about it in America. One evangelical theologian delivered this rather timely challenge to the believer when he wrote, If we come to the scriptures with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's thoughts, then he will not speak. And we will only be confirmed in our own conclusions. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb us, and to overthrow our personal patterns of thought and behavior. Well put. You see, the question isn't, what do you think? And what do I think? How do we feel about hell? It's not the question. The question is, what does God say about the subject? And guess what? He has actually said an awful lot about this place called hell. In fact, more than we might even imagine. When the rather well-known North Carolina evangelist born and bred here and had the accent to match, Vance Havner, if you've ever heard him, he's now with the Lord, been with the Lord for years. When he was beginning his, his ministry, he pastored a country church, and there was a farmer who didn't like his preaching on hell. And so after one particular service, he, he came up to Havner and he said, Why don't you preach about the meek and lowly Jesus? Havner replied, Well, that's where I got my information about hell. <laughs> and it's true. Ladies and gentlemen, the shocking truth is the fact that nearly every single New Testament reference to eternal punishment in hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. As if to to imply that this place is so terrible that no human being can be depended upon to describe it, to speak of it. But the Creator who delivers to us the news to share with our world that this place is real. According to the Bible, there is a coming judgment and eternal consignment in the lake of fire. But before that, there is this judgment, before that sentence is delivered, this judgment that we have been studying. If you have your Bibles at Revelation chapter 20, I've divided that last paragraph, perhaps the most overlooked paragraph in all the Bible, into four sections. The first section was this unforgettable setting. Verse 11 read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth 
and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. We studied this terrifying moment where everything will be, will be changed, the universe exploding, literally fleeing, reconstructed at some later time after this courtroom setting. But here will the world of unbelievers stand. This is the judgment of unbelievers. The judgment of believers has already taken place. We call it the Bema Seat. It's a place not to determine whether or not you get into heaven, but your rewards for how you've lived in faithfulness to God on earth. This is the judgment for unbelievers. And they will be confronted with the truth they denied and dismissed as they stand before God, and they will virtually stand here alone. No defender, no advocate, for they denied the gospel they had heard or seen, the gospel of conscience, the gospel of creation, and or the gospel of Christ. Here they stand in his presence. Like Madoff did before his judge, so all of the world of unbelievers will be standing before the great white throne. And they will be found guilty. God, for them, will not be some cosmic therapist, not some grandfatherly figure who will say, there, there. He will be the holy and righteous judge. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Then we listened in on the what we call the unavoidable summons. Verse 12 records, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. This is a, very clear then when he says great and small. He's talking about those who are impressive and important and well-connected. And These are the emperors, the dictators who didn't know God through Christ. These are the, these are the movers and shakers of the planet. These people mattered. And the smaller there. The ground is equal. Level. The small, meaning the insignificant. And yet they had enough pride in themselves to reject Creator God. They'll all be there standing before this judge. Then we, we notice, thirdly, this undeniable standard. Verse 12 goes on to say the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now I mentioned that I would say more about the purpose of these books being opened, not to determine whether or not they are in hell or be sent to hell forever, but to determine the level of punishment they will receive. And so let me say just a few things about that. Everyone here before this great white throne will suffer in hell, but not all will suffer to the same degree. How do I know that? Well, the Bible teaches there are varying degrees of punishment. In hell, Jesus Christ, again, is the one who delivers the truth. Jesus, when he sent his 12 disciples on a preaching ministry expedition, Matthew's gospel records Christ telling them, quote, whoever does not receive you, that is, they don't heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Matthew 10, 14 and 15. Jesus also warned the hypocrites in his audience, the scribes and religious leaders. He said, who like to walk around in long robes, 
who like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who for appearances sake, and that's the key phrase, it's all a, it's all a scam in religious terms, who for appearances sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater judgment. Matthew 12, 38 to 40. In Luke's gospel, the Lord made a distinction between the punishment of two servants when he said, the servant who knew the master's will and did not act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. This is a reference to eternal judgment and punishment. But the one who did not know it, but committed deeds worthy of a flogging, that is, he still violated the will of his master, will receive but few Luke 12, 47 and 48. In other words, they both sinned against their master, but they will be judged by how much they knew about the master's will. They will both be punished for sinning against their Lord, but they will not be punished to the same degree. One commentator put it this way, all unbelievers will be miserable in hell, but not equally miserable. The very fact that there are degrees of punishment in hell is a severe warning, especially in this country that has a church on every corner, not necessarily preaching the gospel, but the easy access to the truth. Certainly for those sitting in this auditorium at 8 o'clock and 9.30 and now at 11, hearing the same message, surrounded by the truth of the gospel, It is a severe warning to hear it, understand what it means, and reject it. One commentator said, Imar Dahan, who's now with the Lord, he said, Hell for the pagan headhunter who has never heard the word of God is going to be heaven compared to what it will be for you who have heard the pleading of the gospel and have rejected it. In other words, those who have had the maximum opportunity to believe in the gospel of Christ and yet reject him will experience the maximum punishment in the fire of hell. And so with this sermon, I deliver to you another warning and yet another invitation to believe. For after hearing this, your condemnation will only be greater in this day. There is a judgment coming. And those who knowingly reject Christ, the greatest torments of hell await them. One of my staff members sent me a link to a website called the Blasphemy Challenge. I don't recommend you Google that. The Blasphemy Challenge, in which the the designers of this website encouraged people to take them up on the challenge and deny the existence of God the Spirit. They incorrectly assumed that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit that is simply uh, denying his existence is in some unique way unpardonable. Frankly, every sin is unpardonable. Unless you go to Christ and ask him for pardon, right? Unless you go to the cross. You can't remember every sin, but you go to the cross and you ask him to forgive your sin and your sinfulness. And he doesn't He doesn't pay for 99.99% of them. And oh, that one over there, yeah, that's that's the one I, I didn't die for. No, he died for them all. Well, they incorrectly, in fact, to the horror of their thinking, they incorrectly misinterpret that and say, well, if we then verbally deny the existence of the Holy Spirit, then that will consign us 
irredeemably to hell. So take the challenge. They ask that individuals video their response. They have to log in and download it to this site. And I went to the archives and watched in horror one person after another. Finally, I stopped. Many of them teenagers, 20s and 30s, who verbally took the blasphemy challenge and and said, we deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one young man propped his, either his iPhone or his camera on something so that it shot upward and he stood back and behind him was a church. And he said, I'm standing here in front of a church accepting this challenge. He said, I deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. And then he walked forward and leaned down toward his camera and he said, and I am not afraid. Taking pride in their blasphemy. Their condemnation will only be that much greater. And I wondered if they knew it, but according to this text, those statements will be brought forward as evidence of the guilt and the justness of God's sentence. Now, when will they give an account? Well, John tells us here in this opening courtroom scene where the books are open. So you have an unforgettable setting, an unavoidable summons, an undeniable standard as these books are opened and the actions and secrets and and, uh, words and deeds. We talked about the different kinds of books that uh, this could represent in our last study together. will all be judged against the perfect holy standard of God. In the fourth and final uh, division of our exposition of this paragraph, John now shows us the terrible delivery of an unpardonable sentence. God the the Son opens one more book. Notice the middle part of verse 12. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Look down at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the only book that we're given uh, the title uh, to is this last book, the book of life. So after presenting the books, the evidence, God the Son, and we know it's God the Son because Jesus Christ said uh, that the Father has delivered the right to judge the world to the Son, John 5, 17 and 22. So, so Christ now, as it were, leans forward and opens one more volume, one more book. It is effectively the register of heaven. The names of everyone who've been born again, who've come by faith to Christ alone. This is the register of the citizens of of heaven. This is not a book of church affiliation, okay? This isn't a book of church membership. Nobody steps forward and says, hey, wait a second, I'm a Baptist and I've been baptized. I'm a Catholic and I've been catechized. I'm a a Methodist and I've been uh, mesmerized or whatever. (laughs) Nobody's going to step forward and and say that because Jesus did not say, believe on the church and thou shalt be saved. Nobody's going to step forward and say, well, you know, I didn't want to be one of the superiors. I wanted to get my life right. I wanted to be, be the man before I placed my faith. God did not say, believe on yourself and thou shalt be saved. 
He said, believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. And to that Philippian jailer whose household also believed and heard, all that night baptized, their names entered then into the book of life. Now, John's audience would have, would have immediately understood this concept because in his day, every king, every ruler had a roll book of living citizens under his control, his dominion. If, if your name wasn't in his roll book, you weren't part of his kingdom, which was another way of saying he wasn't your king. The Apostle Paul refers to this idea when he calls us citizens of heaven. As he writes to the Ephesians and he says, you are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints of God's household. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. He wrote to the Philippians with this same idea when he told them, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, which actually means then that we're foreigners down here. In whatever land or country God has for us privileged us to live in, this great country, we are eternally joined to another country. Our our citizenship here is temporary. It's not going to last. We've got a green card, so to speak, that allows us to work within the borders of this country, but our citizenship is somewhere else. We've got a passport as citizens. I have a passport that one day I will not renew down here, which, which is a good thing because I am liking my passport picture less and less. Every renewal, there's more glare. They just don't do the lighting right anymore. No, it's that old guy. That's the problem. We're, we're, heading, we're going to set our passports aside. Those were temporary. We're here for a moment, a blip in the scheme of eternity. Our citizenship is permanent. In heaven, having had our name written in the book of, of life. So John writes, God the Son is opening this book. He is allowing the court then the implication would be just as he's allowed the evidence of the other books to be at the disposal of those standing before him, he's allowing this one then, this book of life, which I'll use as my Bible to represent it. The implication then is that one standing before him has access to it. Maybe Jesus Christ shows them, not so much whose names are here, but the fact that their name is not. Maybe someone will come up and say, no, 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 wait a second here. It should be right about here. There's my grandmother's name. There's my father's name. Wait, it, it skips a generation. That, that, should, that should be where my name is. But it isn't there. Truthfully, Everyone would say, I knew my name wasn't written here. In fact, I've seen all the evidence. I didn't need it anyway, but you've confronted me with the undeniable truth. I had no interest in you. 
I had no interest in being in your kingdom. I had no interest in you being my king. The only kingdom I cared about was the kingdom of earth. The only king I cared about was me. And to them, Christ will deliver then what they would admit is just and right. It is this eternal sentence of banishment from the king and his kingdom. Verse 15 says again, look there, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, note he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, now that is so clear. That is so undeniably horrifying that people immediately shift into high gear. I mean, we've got to find a way to maneuver around this paragraph, especially the last phrase, because we kind of like the Bible. And we'd like to think we sort of like God. So that can't be what he means. There's got to be something more manageable. Something a little more comforting. Something less severe. Something less eternal. In fact, if you notice, just before verse 15, the last part of verse 14, John writes, this is the second death. The lake of fire. And that phrase has given rise to one of the more popular maneuverings around the truth of Scripture. And I'll give you two of them very quickly. The first is annihilationism. Annihilationism. You're not going to have to spell that to get into heaven, so just relax. Okay, it's a tough word. But it is a view that the souls of the unredeemed are not eternally damned. They are eventually annihilated, exterminated, terminated in the fires of hell. Depending on how bad they were, depending on how bad they, they acted. Really bad people live a lot longer in hell before poof. People who are really good, you know, just never heard the gospel of Christ, just a second or two and gone. Well, John called it, I just showed you, the second death that... That must mean to cease existing. Well, let me give you an answer. The Bible actually speaks of two different kinds of death, physical and spiritual death. In fact, the word death here, thanatos, means separation. That's what it means. Thanatos refers to the separation of the material, what you see, and the immaterial, that which I really am that you can't see. The immaterial is soul and spirit. In other words, death, if I were to die before I finish this sermon, there will be a separation between my body and my soul. My body, you'll bury, you'll plan a wonderful uh, 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 funeral, I hope, and uh, and lots of nice things will be said that I'm sure I'm fully deserving of. Then you'll gather in the cafe to eat potato salad and go home and talk about the next pastor. Okay, that's how it'll work. Trust me. But my soul, my spirit, which has been awakened, will be immediately with Christ. So there's been a separation. Death, thanatos, means separation. In other words, death is not when the soul ceases. 
to exist. In fact, that separation is temporary. Even for the unbeliever, their bodies will be physically resurrected, joined with their soul, which has been in Hades, the place of torment, awaiting the final judgment. Luke 16, we've already spent time studying that. The body will be resurrected. God will reconstruct it, immortalize it, suit it to be able to take the effects of hell forever, reuniting with the soul. And here they stand at the judgment. Death does not mean cessation. It means separation. So when John says this is the second death, what he means is this separation is between that soul in that immortalized body from God. Listen, you never need to ask the question, is a person going to cease to exist? No, the question is, where will that person exist forever? Clark Pinnock of McMaster University in Toronto happens to be one of the chief proponents of annihilationism. You never want to read his stuff, trust me. But his favorite text that I ought to let you in on because he uses it, even though I believe he knowingly misinterprets it, is Matthew 10, 28. In that text, Jesus warned, and I'll quote him, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that sounds like annihilationism, doesn't it? To the English reader, it might. The problem is the word destroy in the Greek language available to all beginning Greek students is the word apulomai, which does not mean to annihilate, but to deliver up. In fact, the Lord used this verb several times in his preaching. And every time he used the word, it never meant to pass out of existence. It meant to deliver over to misery. So fear the one who is able to deliver both the body and the soul to misery. Is what Jesus is saying. The annihilationist says there's no way, there's no way anybody's going to live forever in hell. They're going to be extinguished. Listen, there will be both physical and soulish suffering, mental suffering. There will be the the agonies of guilt and greed and lust and pain and thirst and hatred and loneliness and anger and despair and fear. And I stopped with my list. Is it really forever? Jesus Christ, again, in one of his sermons, said that the lost will go into eternal fire. Matthew 25. Then he added this verse This phrase recorded in verse 46. And these will go away into, note this, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That original word translated eternal, ionion. Let me give you the literal translation of that. It is eternal. Okay? That's what it actually means. Imagine that. It means everlasting. It means never-ending. And listen, then, the same word, Ionion, Jesus Christ used to speak of the eternality of hell is the same word he used to speak of the eternality of heaven. You can't draw a line in the middle of that verse and say, I don't believe that hell is forever, but I believe heaven's forever. You don't get that out of the Bible. You don't get that from the preaching of Jesus. You don't get that from the truth of Scripture. You get that from your own preconceptions and presuppositions. 
I've never met anybody anyway who said, I believe heaven is temporary. Have you? I've never met anybody who said, you know, I'm going to go to heaven one day, but it's only going to last a little while and then I'm going to go to hell. But I have met people who believe they're going to go to hell, but in a little while they're going to go to heaven. My friend, you never will see the end of forever. And for the believer, that happens to be good news. Because our heaven is eternal, which means that after a few trillion years, God isn't going to say, you know, I'm kind of tired of you. I think heaven would be better without you. No. Once you're there, it's, it's forever. Forever. But the converse side and the tragedy is that once you're in hell, God isn't going to say, you know what, I actually do like you, and I think heaven would be better with you, and why don't you come on up here? The other maneuvering around this uncomfortable truth concerning hell is not only annihilationism but universalism. These are the two great isms that give people false hope. Annihilationism, short definition, says no one will live in hell forever. Universalism says everyone will live in heaven forever. No matter which way you come, all roads lead to God, right? As long as you're sincere, as long as you're sincere, and if you've never heard about Christ, it's okay because worship Buddha with everything you got. And by the way, what that should do for us as a church is shut down missions because we're going to ruin it. We're going to go over somewhere and tell somebody about Jesus Christ, and then they'll reject him, and that'll mess it up for them. It's better to let them be sincere because God will attribute that to their record, and they're going to get into heaven. That's what universalism does, and so the church that believes in universalism does not do what? Evangelize. Share the truth of the gospel. What we're told here, the truth, the truth is, as we've studied, Jesus Christ in his own words said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then he teaches us the truth of this place of punishment, which is forever. It is Judgment that will end all other forms of judgment. In fact, John writes here that uh, in verse 14 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, these are temporary places of waiting. They're poured into, as it were, hell. Sheol in the Old Testament, which is often translated hell, improperly I might add, no one is in hell yet. Their souls are in Hades, those who do not believe, awaiting the final judgment. And that judgment will come, and John depicts it as the pouring out of this temporary punishment into the place of eternal punishment, which is correctly understood as hell, this lake of fire. Death and Hades are emptied out. In other words, he's saying there's no temporary place of, of torment anymore. The permanent place of torment has now received all things unredeemed. Now, we don't know when hell was created. It isn't mentioned in the account of creation in the Genesis account. We're distinctly told that it was created primarily for the devil and his angels. It will be populated by far more than them now. 
We don't even know where it is. There are some that believe that hell is in the middle of the earth because it's a pretty hot place in the middle of the earth. The reason I don't believe that is these individuals are consigned to hell in between the destruction of the universe as we know it and the recreation of the universe as we will know it. We don't know. We could spend another entire sermon describing this place, which we won't do, but I'll give you some descriptive phrases. Quickly, it's a place of isolation, Matthew 22, a place of weeping and wailing, Luke 13, a place where the devouring worm never dies, Mark 9. These are all the sermons of Christ, by the way. It is a place of fire that never burns away, Matthew 5. A place of tormenting thirst, guilt, and regret, Luke 16. A furnace of fire, Matthew 13. And then John says it's a place where they have no rest day or night, Revelation 14, 11. And Jude 1, 13 says it's a place of total darkness. And you say, Stephen, these are figures of speech. Come on, a furnace of fire. You're trying to scare us into church. You want us to behave. That's why God said this kind of stuff. These are figures of speech. Well, well, here's a, a brief English lesson for you. A figure of speech is not a license to modify the thought it expresses. A figure of speech is recognized to be nothing more than a feeble attempt to declare in language that which is beyond the power of words to describe. There's no way to describe it. This place that will last forever, Spurgeon, the London pastor of the 1800s, preached and he said, written over the doorpost of hell and echoing down the corridors of hell is this terrible word, forever. Dante wrote in his classic work, The Inferno, things I don't agree, but some I do. He wrote one thing, above the lobby of hell, just before you entered through the doors, was a sign that read, I am the way to the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. How true. Ladies and gentlemen, hell is both a death sentence and a life sentence. Hell is eternal separation from God. Hell is eternal torment in an immortal body, in a never-dying soul. In hell there is no parole. There is no appeal to a higher court. There is no early release. There is no second chance. There is no escape. This is the end of hope. While you are alive, if you've been with us, I have encouraged you already, and I will say it again. While you are alive, settle out of court, right? Settle out of court. 
Don't refuse the offer of the judge who will now be your savior. To reject him means you will stand before him one day as your judge. And you will with these say farewell to mercy and love and hope and beauty and joy and satisfaction and laughter. This is farewell to the voice of God and the invitation of grace. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost are told of their fate. They cry as they beg him for mercy. They pray, but their prayer is too late. Now the exposition of this paragraph I believe will produce a number of effects, one of which, I'll give you five of them quickly and then we'll wrap it up, is apathy. This is for you, perhaps, one more time to hear about hell. Yeah, you, you preachers, that's, that's your, your deal. You've clocked in. You're about to clock out. Go to lunch. You've heard the truth one more time, but you'll walk away unrepentant, uncaring, and unredeemed. Maybe the effect for you is argumentativeness. You know, who does God really think he is? You know, now I really don't believe the Bible. I was getting close. In fact, I showed up today, and then you ruined it, telling me that he said this. And that he was actually serious about it. And this was, in fact, his word. And so I'm just going to take it up with God one day. You know, as I've researched this subject, I came across the writings of several. One man said, if God sends people to hell, I'd rather worship another God. He doesn't realize it, but he already does himself. Another person said, if God judges people and sends them to hell, I will go to hell and defy him. That's brilliant. (laughs) What utter foolishness and and, and utter tragic blindness. And so if you feel in your spirit, ah, this is making me mad at God, I'm just spelling it out for you, that road leads nowhere. I'm praying and have been that the effect of our study, the Spirit of God will bring some to acceptance. As we began this hour, I read the Philippian jailer who came to that point where he'd seen enough and he'd heard enough. Whatever Paul and Silas were singing, it was packed with the theology like the the songs that we sang. And he said, with trembling, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe. Place your faith in him alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Acknowledge that He alone is sovereign. That He, God incarnate, is the Messiah. Accept Him. You can do that right now. Accept Him. For the believer, 
This study should lead us, and for the sake of alliteration, I'll keep those A's going, to animation. Let's get busy. Let's stay busy. We've got work to do. We do believe that people must have the gospel of Christ. The gospel of conscience and creation is enough to condemn them. It is, it is not enough to save them. They must hear of the one in whom they must believe. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And this name. Consider, as C.S. Lewis said, that everybody you come in contact with, the people you work with, the people you live with, people you live around, everybody in here is an immortal. Immortal. They will never cease to exist. Let's deliver to them the news of the gospel. Finally, may this study provoke in our hearts appreciation and awe. Our names are written in the book of life because of the grace of God which opened our hearts and our eyes and our minds to believe. In Luke's gospel, the disciples were sent out on a mission, a preaching tour, and they did some amazing things. Christ gave them power to reflect the power of their master, the Lord himself, reflecting ultimately the, their relationship with the God of the universe. And, and so these validating signs followed them, and they were able to heal and, and even exercise demons, which really excited the disciples beyond words, because when they came back, Luke recorded that they got around the Lord and they said, effectively, you won't believe what happened. I mean, let me tell you, let, let, we, we got to tell you all that happened, what we saw, what we did. This, the, even the spirits were subject to us. Isn't that great? And Jesus Christ says to them, and I'm sure he's smiling, but he says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, the Lord had the perspective of eternity. And he said, listen, if you want to be excited about a lot of things, go ahead and be excited about it. But what you really ought to be excited about is that your names are written in heaven, in this book of life. And so we, with all who believe, can say with the joy in our hearts, blessed assurance, Jesus is what? Is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. Father, thank you for the delivery of the truth about heaven. The truth about hell. Thank you for showing us that place from which we are redeemed. We will never stand at this great white throne. We will be seated around it as we've learned. And we will say in unison with the hosts of heaven as you deliver this unpardonable sentence, for now it will be too late. We will say everything our God does is right and just. His holiness is vindicated. His sentence is pure justice. The days of mercy were given.
and are now completed. Can you remember a time when you did what that Philippian jailer did? You believed in the Lord Jesus. You asked the question, what do I need to do to be saved? And somebody told you the truth. They didn't tell you, well, you got to go get baptized. You got to go join the church. You got to feel better about yourself and start doing some good things and outweigh the scale of bad things. No, they told you the truth. Believe. Place your faith alone in Christ alone. Acknowledge who he is. God incarnate. The living Lord. And thank him that your name was written in the book of life. If you're here today and you do not know with assurance that your name is there, why would you go anywhere? Why would you do anything but settle it? We would love to pray with you and show you from the word how you can have assurance. We want you to settle this today. Thank you, Father, that for those who believe we leave today with a greater sense of appreciation and awe at your grace. And I pray a greater responsibility to continue doing the work of the church to declare the truth of the gospel to our world. For there will come a day when we will not renew our passports. We will not fill out a census report. Our citizenship will be put away. And we will fly to the new place of heaven and that new earth where we will enjoy you forever. Cause us with greater responsibility and passion like the Apostle Paul to beg the world to be reconciled to God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, friends, and let's sing that, and David's going to lead you. We'll let that be our benediction. Raise your voices. It's a great opportunity to sing. Bless the streets. Let's sing it together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Bless you.